thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Okay, so a lot of people were predicting in the build-up to the announcement about NASA and not NASA, NASA and what the scientists have found. There were a lot of predictions about what the announcement would be, and that is our science story of the week. Chris Smith joins us now. Good morning to you, Chris. Hi, Reedy. Thank you. So, water on Mars is this huge? Well, we've known for a long time that there was in the past, and there is today a lot of water on Mars. But the announcement that came out at the beginning of the week, which is in Nature Geosciences, was that they have found evidence that that water is flowing. Mm. Because previously there was evidence that the water was there, and it's very cold on Mars, so it was presumed it was in an icy form. Now they have evidence that this water does at least move some of the time. In this paper, what they did was to use... A, a satellite, a probe, which is in orbit around Mars, and they looked at the surface of Mars using not just visible light, but also infrared. An infrared light is important because it can see other forms of chemistry and chemical make uh, chemical compounds, and shed it, shed a different light on them, if you like, than normal visible light. And when they did this analysis, there were some rather strange features that jumped out in a number of places that were imaged. And looked at in closer detail, it shows evidence that there are rivulets or that that at some places water has formed and then run downhill. And what's interesting is that this has only happened in areas where the temperature has climbed above 23 degrees C below. Why is that relevant? Well, what the model is or what people think could be going on here is that water in the atmosphere, or from some sources, condensing in certain places, because if you have water vapour and then you have a surface that it can collect into to make water droplets, the water coalesces and it dissolves into salts, because the surface of Mars is very salty. There are lots of chlorates and perchlorate chemicals there. These have the property of drawing in water towards themselves and making them condense into it. They then absorb so much water, they dissolve in that water, and that's called deliquescence. And if you have enough of this, then you'll eventually get some liquid water that can run down the slope. The relevance of the saltiness is that when you dissolve a salt in water, you drop the freezing point. So if you make a really strongly salty solution, then although the temperature is still many, many degrees below the freezing point of pure water as in what the kind of freezing point we see here on Earth, it will still run. And that's what they think has happened here. Right. Okay. Very, very fascinating indeed. And our lines are open for you. If you've got any questions about this particular discovery, give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. And of course, uh, Chris, this gets asked over and over again. It was the same with Homo Naledi. The questions were were, were virtually uh, the same. Already I have an email. Somebody wants to know, uh, does this discovery mean that life does exist on Mars? I understood the the scientists are saying that it doesn't uh, necessarily mean, uh, that's not what they're saying uh, necessarily. Now, this discovery is a a geological Mm. and a hydrological one, but given that we believe that life as we know it relies on water in order to make the chemistry possible that makes life like us possible, if we go to places where there is liquid water, then 
we have the best prospects of finding life, either past or present. And NASA have been at a lot of pains to emphasise that the missions that they have mounted to Mars are not life-searching missions. They are analysing Mars with respect to what might have been there in the past and to find places that might be a possible prospect for life. They're not actually going looking directly for life, but if life turns up, then that'll be a bonus. Our lines are open for you. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. We are taking your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31567. Somebody wants to know how sugar addiction happens. <laughs> well, well, stop. Um, Ask Thomas. Uh, there's a lot of people around the world who would know all about this, yeah. including me, I think. But sugar is sweet. It's very, very easy to absorb in your body, and it instantly can be used in your metabolism. So it's actually an extremely attractive energy source for the human body. And not surprisingly, it's therefore something that we become quite fond of because it's actually quite hard to obtain large amounts of sugar in nature. Most sugar is tied up in complicated molecules like starches. Therefore, uh, the, the, the sources of sugar you will find in the environment as pure sugar being pretty rare it's a good idea to make somebody, if they can find something sweet, to like it because then they'll probably go and get more of it. But now we live in a world where we have, un, where we have these highly refined carbohydrates, sugars, available in almost unlimited quantities to us. It's perfectly possible to totally overdo it. And so the, the very mechanism that would have helped us to survive historically when we wouldn't have had access to these sorts of foodstuffs is now going to be our sort of metabolic undoing in the modern era because we are genetically programmed to grab all these calories and pack them away for a rainy day. And because you can convert sugar into energy and that energy into fat, if you take in lots of excess calories, you're going to become fat. So unfortunately, by wanting to eat this stuff because it tastes nice, because we're genetically programmed to like it, because it's so good for our metabolism to quickly give us an energy surge, it's unfortunately becoming a bit of a problem in the modern era. Let's go straight to the lines then. It's Paul in Santon. Good morning. Hi there. Hi, Chris. Um, I was Hi, wondering, uh, I was wondering uh, what mechanism allows whales, uh, which are mammals, to uh, drink salt water without it harming them, as it would um, land mammals. Hmm. Hi, Paul. Well, these marine mammals don't necessarily have to drink very much water because they're eating food in the form of either plankton or fish and those animals when they eat them have got water in their bodies that are not at the same concentration as salt water always so some of their water will come from that source when you metabolize something you break open the molecules in whatever you're metabolizing let's take sugar since we were talking about that if you have some sugar glucose and that's c6h12o6 when you burn that in, in the presence of oxygen in your body then what you get out is carbon dioxide and water so a lot of the water that you use in your body and these animals use in their bodies is actually water coming from breaking open carbohydrates mm. and similar molecules so you get some water from that source and then there is adaptation many of these creatures have adapted physiology so that they have very good mechanisms to lead to lose salt from the body we do it by having our kidneys throw away excess salt in the urine up to the point at, at which um, we normally need to lose salt from the body. In other words, there's a certain concentrating power in our blood that's capable of losing the excess salt in the kidney. Other animals that have to live in more uh, demanding environments have better kidneys and other ways to lose the salt. So the answer is that they mm -hmm. have all of these things put together in, a, in order to enable them to survive very well in the environment that they inhabit. 
Okay, does that answer your question? Very fascinating one, uh, Paul. Thank you very much. Are you satisfied? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Now, Richard in Morningside. Good morning. Hi, Reedy. Hi, Chris. Chris, my question is about TV decoders and remotes. My decoder is out of the line of sight of the remote when we're sitting watching TV. During the day, I have to get up and it's got to be in line of sight of the decoder, but at night it doesn't. Why is that? Well, I'm not sure what sort of um, device you're using. Is it an infrared one? Um, Yes, it is. Um, Difficult to say because infrared is just another form of electromagnetic energy, bit like visible right. light it's just off the end of the spectrum of the visible light and yes. if you think about your room uh, when you turn the lamp on in one corner of the room although it's in that corner of the room then the light still shines on most areas of the room because a bit like a bullet ricocheting around a room light waves will bounce off of surfaces and get pretty much everywhere and the reason you can sit out of line of sight with your infrared remote is because the infrared will bounce off of certain surfaces which are opaque to infrared and they will then go back into the decoder from a range of angles and as as long as enough information reaches the decoder or the uh, receiver for it to pick up the signal then you're home and dry I can only think that the reason it works at some times of the day and not others is perhaps because things are are organised differently in the room at different times of the day because if you've got something in the way which is opaque to infrared and what do I mean by that? Well, interestingly, some things which visible light will go straight through are completely opaque to infrared or other wavelengths of light and so maybe if the furniture's in a different place or there's, there's more in the room, more people in the room that may soak up the energy or also emit other sources of infrared that can confuse your thing. If you turn the lights on, for instance, there might be some infrared signals that bleach out the infrared, uh, which would normally get to the decoder um, when the room was dark because they'd bounce off other sources, uh, other surfaces. If you follow my, my logic, if you've got other sources I, of infrared on because I, it's I nighttime, exactly that, what that you're might saying, be interfering. It, it always works at night and never during the day. Hmm then I'm, then I, I'm at something of a loss, um, apart from those reasons I've outlined. I think don't use it during the day. That would be my answer. Don't watch TV during the day. Hey, Richard. Thanks very much. They are men. I'm kidding. <laughs> Let's take a break. We're back in a moment. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567, 011 Let's go to uh, Richard in Randburg. Hi. Okay, Richard is gone. But Richard wanted to ask, where do deleted emails and SMSs go? (laughs) Very good point, especially in this modern digital age. The answer is that when you delete something off your computer, you very rarely delete something off your computer because the way in which most of these operating systems store stuff is that although you have removed the reference to the data the data itself still remains on your hard disk and it's a bit like going to the library where you've got in the old days a card file index which would tell you where on what shelf you would find what book and if you ripped up the card it wouldn't make the book disappear but you just wouldn't know where to find it so although you've deleted something and it marks that patch of the disk as available for someone to write over the original data remains there until someone does write over it. So if you know how to do this sort of thing, then you can recover bit by bit the 
data which is on the disk surface and you can recover all that kind of content. And in fact, just to show you or give an example of, of how serious this is, to demonstrate this, a few years ago I went on to um, an online marketplace where people auction things mm -hmm. and I bought for not very much money about five or six second-hand hard disks that people were selling because they'd broken up the computer that, that they were in or, or they bought a new machine and they wanted to flog the disk. Mm -hmm. I looked at all these discs and they had ostensibly been wiped. I then gave them to a company who we work with called UK Fast, who are based in, in the UK. Uh, they run web hosting, but they also have a, a division of the company called Sakama, who specialise in security. And they were able to recover from all of those hard disks, except one that had been properly wiped, the data that had originally been there. Lots of music, lots of photographs, mm -hmm. One of the hard disks even came from a school Whoa. and there were records of the performances of the staff and even pupil records de detailing who'd been bullying, bu bullying who and who was in trouble and how many detentions people had had and so on. In other words, it was hopelessly insecure. So when you delete stuff, you haven't really deleted it, so you should be very, very cautious about what you do with the machine afterwards. If you're using data online in the cloud or on sites like Facebook and you're deleting things, there will always be a digital trail of detritus left behind you. You can never rely on it going completely because there will always be backup somewhere and other people may, may just be keeping that data for some reason or another. So I would advise you, don't put anything online in the cloud that you wouldn't be perfectly comfortable having someone else snooping into, perhaps mm. with the exception of your online banking where you don't really have a choice. <laughs> Here. Kirk in Stellenbosch, hi. Hi, yes. Um, the, 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 the infrared during day and night, uh, the remote. Um, I found that problem resolved sometimes and, and I, uh, I, I sort of attribute it to maybe sunshine shining into the, uh, a room or direct light, uh, sunshine onto the remote that maybe I'm right or wrong, I don't know. Yeah, I sort of speculated that the, there must be a source of infrared which is bleaching out the handset because I, I said, well, maybe at night time you turn the lights on or there's some other extraneous source of infrared. But yes, you're right, the converse might be true in the daytime. There might be lots of heat streaming in through the window and it's making it harder for the remote to actually get its signal through to the receiver compared with at night time. Colani in Springfield. Good morning. Good morning. Please ask uh, Chris, uh, why when you cry, the pain becomes less? Oh, so <laughs> does it become less, Chris, when we are in pain and we cry? <laughs> well, we cry for a number of reasons, don't we? We cry sometimes because we're happy. We cry sometimes when we're very sad. We cry other times when we're in extreme pain. And in all cases, this is an outward display of emotion and because as humans we're very visual creatures, about a third of your brain is devoted just to decoding what comes in through your eyes, we have evolved to produce these sorts of outward displays of emotion in order to get help and support from other people. So one of the reasons we feel better when we cry is usually because people come along and help us. And if you immediately start to get help, you immediately start to feel better. So that's part of it. I also think that um, when you engage the kinds of circuits that make you cry and make you have this outpouring of emotion, you also engage circuits in your brain which have a damping effect. They can help to control pain, they can help to control um, the emotion that you're feeling and help to suppress it. And so that's why you feel better after a good cry because you release in your brain some of these feel-good chemicals that help to damp down some of the um, excitable 
chemicals that make you feel upset in the first place. So I think there's probably a range of different factors involved, but one of them is certainly that you get help when you cry because people notice. Okay. And uh, Ellen in Sunning Hill, good morning. Hi, how are you? Fine, welcome. Good. Chris, quickly, um, I've got a big macaw, and he always sits on two legs, but at night when he sleeps, he sits on one leg. Why? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's a good question, and I don't know the answer to this. I'm not a macorologist. Um, but, what, I mean, there's a number of reasons why birds only stand on one leg. If you are an, uh, an aquatic bird, then you can do this sometimes if it's very cold in the water, because when you're standing on ice or in cold water, then you're losing heat from the legs that are in contact with the cold water. And so sometimes birds draw their legs up inside their bodies in order to conserve heat so one reason could be that it's a sort of heat conservation thing because you know at night time temperature drops and if you've got exposed body parts you're radiating heat to the environment pull that foot up inside yourself and you have lower surface area radiating and convecting conducting heat out into the environment so that might be the reason there may well be another more subtle one which i haven't thought of so if anyone knows the answer to this and is a bird expert do please let me know it's chris at the naked scientist.com or in this birdie question <laughs> you should tweet at naked scientist <laughs> pious in mondial high good morning mm. um, i wanted to ask the naked scientist just uh, the same way humans have different colors around the globe, black, white, um, Indians, etc. Is there any other species that has that characteristic? And oh. Not, why? The human species different races, so you want to know if any other. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, humans, modern humans, Homo sapiens sapiens, we are all one species. We're all genetically extremely close. And those differences in the way we look are purely down to what we call our phenotype. They're our our visible characteristics. And that's genetic diversity, which is affecting the way in which our bodies are shaped and the way in which our bodies grow and the colour. But underneath, the core physiology, the way in which our bodies run, our core genetics are all identical. Now, the evidence for that is that we're all interfertile. If you are a human who is from South America and you get together with someone who's an Inuit in the North Pole or someone from China or South Africa, then you should be able to breed and and have fertile offspring, which is, at the end of the day, one of the definitions of a species. So that shows that we're all the same species, and we know that genetically anyway. You can do the same thing with dogs. Dogs despite the fact that they all look different, and Mm. some of them are not much bigger than a guinea pig, others are almost the size of a small horse, they are all dogs, they are all interfertile because they are all the same species. And the, the genetic diversity in the dog population, informed and enforced by human selective breeding, has led to these emergence of breeds. And that's very similar to where all these breeds of humans came along, because historically, before we had cars and planes and trains, people were very isolated around the world. They lived in small communities where certain types of genes, which led to the emergence of certain types of characteristics, those genes got concentrated in those populations because they gave those people advantages. Modern humans evolved in Africa. They evolved to have an African characteristic, a certain stature, a certain skin colour, a certain hair hair type, all of which gave huge advantage for living in the environment that these people involved in. When they moved out of Africa to other parts of the world, mm-hmm. those traits were diluted or changed in order to reflect the new environment they lived in. 
white people came along because when you go out of Africa, you no longer need that intense pigmentation in the skin to protect you from the sun, to stop you losing all your folic acid. You then have another problem, which is you can't absorb enough sunlight to get vitamin D when mm. you live in the North Pole. And so you have to have white skin again in order to overcome that. And that's all, it, it's just genetic diversity. So the answer is that uh, actually... We're all one big happy family, and and it's, and it's just because of local selection of genes that make us look a bit different. Lots and, of animals do this. An SMS, what actually happens when you yawn? Well, when you're yawning, we think that part of the reason why we're yawning is to wake us up. And that sounds a bit of a facetious answer, but it's uh, true. When you yawn, you tend to draw in lots of cold air, which has a brain cooling effect. And a guy called Gordon Gallup did a study in New York a few years back where they showed students videos of other people yawning and they looked at how often the people yawned in sympathy with the video and they found it was about 50%. Mm -hmm. They then got the people to breathe through their mouths or hold a cold compress onto their head. When they breathed through their mouths, the rate of yawning went to 100%. When they held the cold compress on their head, it fell to 0% of sympathetic yawning. So they think that when you yawn, you yawn and you yawn contagiously with other people because it's a reflection on tiredness. It's often associated with brain overheating because of sleep deprivation. And if you yawn, you pull in cold air, cool down your brain, and this boosts alertness. Now, Chris, I think I saw this on your um, Naked Scientist um, uh, Twitter account. Uh, I can't remember which, yeah, a couple of days ago, that coffee staves off depression. I love that so much. Tell me that's true, and it, was, it wasn't just a headline. Well, no, I, I, I must admit I haven't read that paper, because that would have been one of the people who I work with. But it's certainly true that um, coffee does perk you up. And it, one of the things it does is to increase the levels of various neurotransmitters in your brain. And as well as waking you up, it also increases the levels of some of these arousing uh, nerve transmitters that make you feel less unhappy. And so there is the possibility that if you're feeling unhappy and you have some coffee, you feel more happy afterwards. Let's go to Gerard in Hartby. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I have a peculiar problem in that working from home, I depend very much on my computer but my wife also depends very much on her radio, and whenever I turn on my computer, her radio becomes almost unusable because of interference. Um, and I've not been able to find anybody who can explain that to me or, or come up with a solution. And I wondered whether uh, they were naked. Okay. Well, uh, I can speculate. I, I don't know what channel your wife is listening on, but it could well be an AM radio. And if you are using a computer and it's got lots of electrical parts that are whizzing around like fans and things in it, these fans will generate little sparks where the brushes are, uh, usually, that's common. And when you have little sparks or electrical discharges like that, and also some of the chips inside these things that are working at high frequencies, they will produce interference. And what you're doing is producing a source of radio waves which is far stronger than the radio antenna that your wife is tuning into for her radio station. So you are dr literally drowning out the radio signals that she wants to listen to. It's a bit like if you're listening to some music being played from a distance and then someone comes along and they turn on or they, they turn on their guitar and start playing louder than the music in the distance, then all you'll be able to hear is the guitar. So your computer is a source of radio wave interference, which is bleaching out the signals, just out-competing the signals that your wife's radio would normally tune into. Have a lovely weekend. And Chris, we're done for the moment. I'm going to do my best. Thanks, Reedy. Bye bye. bye. We'll podcast this conversation with the Naked Scientist. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? 
then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.